We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 today. We're going to be working through verses 27 through 39. It's the end of that chapter. And I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm going to tell you now that there's a point that would be great for you to be able to react at. I want you to feel free. The first service, I don't know, they just didn't feel that freedom, and I want to prep you and prime you for it in a little more intimate group this, in this service. So, so less people to worry about thinking about you responding. You just, just, just know, I think you'll know the point, and, and uh, just feel free to do that. Um, but as we talk today, I want to I talk about, last week we talked about sinners and being sinners, and, and obviously that's not always a fun conversation, but, but Jesus didn't come and just provide an answer for sinful people. He did come and provide an answer for religious people, but religion is, is a little different. It's, it's, it's deadly. It's costly. Now, I don't mean that it's deadly in the sense that religion kills the way some people use it today as they talk about uh, uh, people killing in the name of religion. That's not what I'm referring to. I, I, people do that, and I wouldn't condone that. I don't think it's something that we should be about doing. But that's not, even, that's not really what I'm referring to. What I'm talking about religion being deadly, being costly, I'm talking about everyone that devotes themselves primarily to a religious practice as their path to righteousness, their path to their nirvana or, or heaven. They're going to find themselves eternally condemned. The truth is religion is probably the deadliest of, of all things, the, the, the things that kill us permanently. Religion is never going to satisfy us. It's never going to to make us whole. It's never going to give us contentment. Uh, for, for those who devote themselves to it or pursue religion for the sake of religion, for, for proving themselves, they will always be found wanting. The thing is, is that it's not just damaging or hurtful to the adherents of religion. Those who are near the adherents of religion also suffer as well. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, sometimes they, people do kill in the name of religion. That really does happen. If you don't agree with me, if you don't practice religion the same way I do, then I think you should die, and, and I feel like I'm the one that should make that happen. But more than that, far more often than people are killing, physically killing in the name of religion, they're hurting people in the name of religion, and, and rather than killing people, they're condemning people. And they're treating them poorly, and they're treating them as if they are less worthy. See, all the while as people that pursue righteousness, all the while as they're pursuing their 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 religious practice and calling themselves uh, 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 religious, uh, all the while this is happening, they are not becoming better. They're simply becoming bitter. They, they, they fill themselves with these rules, and then they find themselves unable to, to live out these rules, and they, rather than become better, they become bitter. And then this bitterness ekes out of them and kind of flows out to everyone around them and gets put on everybody around them. And so when sinners act like sinners do, you know, when sinful people sin, it's what happens, they pick up their chins and they look down their noses and they think, who are you? Wow, I'm glad I'm better than you. You ever, you ever experienced that? You, you ever done that? And it's not just then if someone sins or does something that they would deem unworthy, but if someone has the audacity to go to those sinful people, those people that they would deem unworthy, and offer them hope and help. Who do you think you are telling these people that they can be forgiven? Who do you think you are offering them some assistance? This is exactly the place that Jesus found himself. 
here in Luke chapter 5, this is the exact set of circumstances in which we find him. Not because of his humanitarian mission. I mean, the religious people of Jesus' day, they were more than happy to see sick people healed. And they were more than happy to see hungry people fed. Their problem was with Jesus going to sinful people. And offering salvation to people that they didn't believe deserved it. Last week, as we worked through Jesus' call on Matthew's life, this is what we began to see. Jesus wasn't always well received. It wasn't as if everyone looked at Jesus and were like excited that he was here, that he had come. His gracious efforts on behalf of sinful people were often questioned and condemned. Today, we're going to read that that section again, verses 27 through 32, just as a matter of review, just to keep it in in our minds and show us the context and show us the contrast between sinners sinning and religious people being as sinful. So if you will, read with me, begin in in, in verse 27. It's on page 861 of the Bibles in the chairs if you would like to follow along or you're welcome to jump on our YouVersion Live event and you can follow along with the notes there. But he says, it says this in in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast at his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus had demonstrated his authority to forgive sins. So here's here's the, the, the line of events. So Jesus is teaching, and people are falling in love with what he's saying. They appreciate the authority that he teaches with. They appreciate his powerful miracles. And so the religious leaders of the day gather. It's like they show up at this big conference at, at, at probably Peter's house in Capernaum, and there's so many people there that they're, they're, they filled the house out, probably spilling out into the courtyard, filled the house out so much so that when Jesus is, is needed by a paralyzed man, They can't get the paralyzed man to him. So this man's friends load him up on this mat. They pick him up, put him on the roof. They dig a hole in the roof, and they lower the man down on the mat. And when the man is seen by Jesus, when Jesus sees him and sees the faith of him and the men that brought him there, he says, your sins are forgiven. And the people that are sitting there at this conference, they're like, wait a minute. Who is this guy that's forgiving sins? Only God can forgive sins. What are you thinking, Jesus? Well, Jesus tells them, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins here, this is what I'm doing. And he turns and he looks at the man, the paralyzed man, he says, get up and walk. That paralyzed man who'd been carried in a mat stands up, picks up the mat that he'd been given, or that he'd been carried in on, and he walks out glorifying God. See, Jesus had just demonstrated through his power that he has authority to forgive sins. Sins. Then, as the conference ends and he finishes teaching all these religious leaders, he stands up, he leaves the house, he walks out, and I think there's a very close connection to, to, to the moment of him healing that paralyzed man. He walks out, he says, it says this, after this he went out and saw a tax collector. After he healed the paralyzed man as a demonstration of his authority to forgive sins, Jesus stands up, walks out of the house, and he sees a tax collector. He's not just seeing a man who's sinful in need of, of help, uh, physical help. He's seeing a man who is sinful and would have been considered sinful, uh, more sinful than probably many other people, most other people in Capernaum. And he walks up to him and he says to Matthew, to Levi, 
He says, follow me. Now, you can be sure that Matthew was probably the most surprised person there. He was probably the surprised more than anyone else that this man, Jesus, who had been teaching and performing miracles all over the area, who, who had shown his authority, who had shown his power, this man, Jesus, walked up to him. Who am I that he would walk up to me? So he does it. He, he does exactly what Jesus commands him to do. He stands up, he leaves everything behind, and he follows Jesus. Shocking. But it's not so shocking to think then that Matthew is just ecstatic. Matthew has just been called by this powerful man to follow him, to learn from him, and to walk in his footsteps, but to be a, a disciple of his, to be a beneficiary of this man. Nobody was more surprised, but I don't think anybody was more ecstatic about this fact than Matthew himself. So he goes home and he puts on a big party. He invites all of his friends. His friends happen to be tax collectors and sinners. He's been written off by the Jewish people. He's been written off by the leaders of the day. He's been written off by the Pharisees. You don't even deserve to be in our presence. Well, who's he associating with? He associates with tax collectors and and other sinful people. Other people who have been written off. And so he throws this party. He's ecstatic. He wants to celebrate. He throws this party. And on the invitation list, he puts Jesus and his disciples. And again, shockingly enough, Jesus shows up. He goes to the party that, he, that, that, that others would have said, You're, you shouldn't be going to. He shows up and he sits at this party. He eats their food and he drinks their drink. And he sits and spends time with sinners. And when he's confronted about it, he's, he's, he takes an opportunity to teach. He's like, sinners are like sick people. They need a doctor. I'm the doctor. I'm, I, that's why I came here. I, I, I come here and I, I hang out with sick people or, or with sinners because they're the ones who need me. See, that means for us now. That means for us now that if we are claiming to be saved... By Jesus, at some point we had to confess that we ourselves are sinners in need of salvation. It was the whole point of the message last week is that salvation is for sinners. If you are being saved into life, you are being saved from sin. If you are not being saved from your sin, you are not being saved. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. He called to call to, he came to call sinners. That's what he says. The irony of the whole situation is that these self-righteous religious Pharisees, they needed to repent as much as these sinful tax collectors and other sinners did, but they were blind to it. As much as the sinner needs to repent of their sins, the religious needs to repent of their self-righteousness. But they couldn't see it. And so rather than benefit from Jesus' call and his call to repentance for sinners... They were offended. And the conflict began. Because they just couldn't grasp the fact that Jesus came to save sinful people. The conflict continued. In fact, as we read today, you'll see that the conflict continues. The difficulty continues. We'll pick it up in verse 33. And they said to him, well, we don't know exactly how closely this passage is connected to to the previous one. Uh, Some people think it's closer than others. We we don't exactly know. But it says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But but yours eat and drink. They're upset. They're upset not because of what they're doing now, but, but what they're not doing. 
Before they're upset because Jesus is going to parties with sinful people. Now they're upset because he's not doing something they deem he should be doing. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also said to them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it in puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into the old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the, sins, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. So here's Jesus having been put in this place, of having been put in their place and, and sharing their concerns and Jesus showing them that, that he had come to call sinful people and that they didn't agree with that. How, now, now they're concerned, but they're not concerned so much with what he's doing, what he's not doing. Not, he's not living up to their expectation. Here's the thing is that they expected Jesus and his disciples to, to practice their religion exactly like they did. And they had this list, they had this whole list of things that they, that they would follow, this whole list of rules that they would follow that demonstrated that they were righteous, that they were worthy of God's favor. Fasting was a big piece of that. The thing is that for Jewish people, there was only one fast that was ever required by the law. And it happened to be on the Day of Atonement, one day out of the whole year that they were required to fast. It was a solemn, uh, a solemn event. It was the day in which all of their sons, all, all of their sins, and the and the sins that were, were the the, uh, the altar and the temple, everything was atoned for in this day. And it was a day, not just a, a it was a holy day. It was a Sabbath day, but it was also a day that was that was marked with fasting of giving up something, usually food, but one day a year. But the Pharisees, in an attempt to really prove their righteousness and prove their piety, to, to really earn their place before God, they ratcheted it up a little bit. But they didn't just make fasting a, a thing that you did a few times a year then. They didn't, they didn't do it just, just a, 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 a once a month. They ratcheted it up to two times a week. Every Tuesday and every Thursday, they would fast and they would pray. And the thing was, was that they did it so that people would know how righteous they were. In fact, there's reports that some would paint their faces white. They would put on makeup to make themselves look emaciated. They would paint themselves white to make themselves look hungry. It's like putting on makeup and, and walking around like a zombie. I mean, they would, they would look for ways to, 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 to look like they were giving up more. They would put on torn and tattered clothes so that, so that they looked disheveled. They, they, they wouldn't wash so that people would just know what they were willing to give up and how, 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 how good they were and how much they were earning their position and their favor from God. But it wasn't just the Pharisees that did this. We see, he says that, that you know, Jesus has challenged the, the disciples of John. That's John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the, is the final prophet of the Old Covenant. He comes in and he's preaching and he gathers this large following and he's calling the people of Israel to repentance. And as he's calling them to repentance, he has a number of people responding. And they come. And I mean, he is, he is, he's got this following of thousands and tens of thousands of people. And as they step into this repentance, and as they're baptized into this repentance, what do they do but look around at those that they think are religious and begin to follow them? And that's the, the, the tradition of the day. 
The tradition of the day was to do these things and to walk around in these ways. But this is what religion does. It gives us a set of rules to follow. It gives us a set of practices to live in. But ultimately, it heaps on us a weight that's impossible for us to carry, and it leads us into misery. See, religion is pretty destructive because it doesn't make us better. It ultimately just means it makes us bitter, and then it ultimately kills us and sends us into eternal condemnation. I'll never forget a conversation I overheard. It was between two pilots back when I was in the Army. We were, we were in the hangar that I was working in. I was a helicopter mechanic, um, and one was a test pilot, and one was, a, was a, a, an instructor pilot, and they were sitting and talking, and, and the test pilot, his name was Mr. Keller. He was uh, an influential man in my life. I had not been a believer for very long, but he was a sincere Christian. He loved the Lord, and he, he lived it. It was obvious in his life. He never, he never discipled me directly, but even today I can think back and think of lessons that I learned as I watched him. This happens to be one of those times. As he was sharing his faith at work, this other pilot talked about, oh, well, I tried Christianity. It just made me miserable. I was so sad the whole time. What I realized today is that that man didn't find Christianity. He found a religion that bore the same name. You see, he found a, a, a list of traditions, a bunch of hoops to jump through, but he didn't find the Christ of Christianity. He didn't find the hope that we have. He didn't find the power that we have. He didn't find the, the new life that we have. He found rules to live by, but not the power nor the desire to actually live in them. And so what he gained was this measuring stick that he could carry around and show himself unworthy and unable He was given a stick to beat himself up with. That's what religion is. Religion alone, it ultimately destroys its adherence. And that's what it was doing to this man. And so he decided, well, this is enough. I don't need this. And he walked away. It makes them miserable. And then they turn that misery around and they spray it all over the people around them. Because if I'm going to be miserable, you must be miserable too. But there's a better way a much better way. Jesus came to offer all of us salvation from our sin and from our empty religion. We need to be saved. Sin destroys us because it calls us to find our hope for life in the world around us. It says that if you have the right relationships, if you have the right stuff, if you have the right standing and and, and the right approval from the people around you, then you will be happy, then you will be good, then you will be accepted, you will be approved. Find your contentment and your satisfaction and joy in a temporal world that's fading and falling. That's what sin does. Religion destroys us because it calls us to find our hope for life in ourselves and our own efforts. If you'll just do this. If you'll show up at church. If you'll go to community group. If you'll read your Bible. If you will pray a certain number of times a day. And we see this in Africa so clear in this Muslim tradition and among the people that we serve and, and preach the gospel to in Africa. We were, we were woken up every morning by a call to prayer at 5 o'clock. They've got these loudspeakers in the village now. I don't know why they need them, but they do. And we just happen to be right next door. 
And they would call. I don't know what they were saying, but it was about that loud. And then they would pray. And I, again, I don't know what they were saying. But 99 times, five times a day, they say the exact same phrase as they pray. And they pray through these prayer beads, separated in sections of 33 so that they can keep count. And they're told if you just follow this religion, then you'll, you'll gain heaven. The truth is, there's people in America that live and think exactly the same way. And they are not Muslim. Some of them even carry the name Christian. And some are following a religion of patriotism. Some are following a religion of being a good parent, being a faithful spouse, counting on your good works, our good works, to make us acceptable to God. It will never succeed. You will be left empty. You will be left wanting. But enter Jesus into the life of the likes of Matthew. A man cut off and seen as unworthy by the people that he lived among. And enter Jesus into the life of these religious folks. One finds reason to throw a party and the others find reason to be upset, to condemn and judge. But Jesus came for even them. See, Jesus came to us offering the gospel of his grace for sinners that they might find their hope for life in him. He came offering this gospel of grace for sinners and religious alike. We all need him. We all are desperately needy people. He doesn't demand that we first measure up and find our way to him. He doesn't come to us in the middle of our sinful and joyless existence. And he comes to us in the middle of our sinful and joyless existence and makes it possible for us to follow him. He does the work that makes it possible for us to do what he's called us to do. In Solid Joys, John Piper's daily devotional, he writes this for the day, I think it was August 20th. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. It is pardon, but it's also power. As Christians, as a people that follow Jesus, we have all the reason in the world to be filled with joy. We have reason to be full of passion and excitement. We are the people that should be throwing the best parties because we ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ have been confronted with our sin and been made free from them. We don't have to carry out empty religion because in His power, by His grace, we can actually do the good works He's called us to do. You see, this is what He's come for. Christians should be throwing the best parties. It's not parties that are, that are marked by debauchery like the parties of the world, but they also won't be weighed down by the misery that accompanies an empty religion. When we're confronted with our own sin, we know God's grace is sufficient. That we know that even though I don't measure up, even though I deserve condemnation, His grace is sufficient. And it makes me approved. I no longer have to cower in fear from him, hiding because he has pardoned me. 
He has pardoned you. We have been given life, not because we deserve it, but because he is simply good and gracious. That is reason to celebrate. When we're called, when we're called to repentance, when we're called to live a holy life, when we're called to walk in the righteousness that he has given us, we don't have to be distraught because he didn't, he didn't just simply pardon us. He actually gave us power to walk in repentance. He gave us power to do what he's asked us to do. He gave us power to do the things he's called us to. We aren't having to depend on our own strength to live in obedience. His grace pardons us from disobedience and empowers us to live in obedience. And when we look at the sin of others, no longer do we have to lift up our measuring stick and say, you don't meet the cut. No longer do we have to pick up our chins and look down our noses. We can be sad for them if they... If they reject his call, but it's not, not our place any longer to condemn them. Really, they're to be pitied because they're missing the free offer of salvation because they'd rather have something else. And Jesus' gospel of grace, it is our singular source of hope for life and joy in life. His gospel of grace is our singular source of hope for life and joy in life. This is why he says, in, 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 in answer to this, you don't fast enough, you don't do enough things that prove you're religious. He answers, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He, he's, he's present with them. These, these, these disciples of his, these ones following him, these ones called to come with him. They're not just hearing about the miracles. They're not just hearing about what he's saying. They're eyewitnesses and earwitnesses to it. They've seen Jesus tell paralyzed people to get up and walk. They've seen Jesus heal the sick. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen him do these powerful things. And they didn't just hear people talking about his teaching. They were there. They heard it with their own ears. Understood it in their own hearts. They heard it firsthand. Why? Would they do anything but celebrate at this point? The man that they had come to know as the Messiah was standing in front of them. The man that had come to save them was there with them. Why wouldn't they celebrate? He says, there's coming a time. There will be a, a point, he says. There, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. You see, their fasting, it, it came. Their mourning, it came came on a day when Jesus was in the garden praying and, and led in by one of his, his own disciples, Judas. Led in by Judas comes the temple guard to arrest him. They come as if, as if they're pursuing a thief. They arrest him and they bring him to be tried. And he's condemned. And he's handed over to the Romans to die. And that next morning, they watched as their saviors, their, their Messiah, was nailed to the cross and hung there to die. You can be certain that that day ended in mourning. That it ended in fasting. But that morning was short-lived. Because Sunday rolled around and the women went to the tomb and they heard the testimony of the angel and then they saw Jesus with their own eyes. And then Jesus stood before his disciples and showed himself. 
And then at one point, he shows himself to over 500 people. Jesus was alive, and the fast and the morning was ended. You see, it was short-lived. There's a reality. Yeah, we're going to face trouble. We're going to face problems. For some of you, I know them personally. I'm walking by, by, by you in, in the midst of them. I know there's problems, but the, sh- the, the, the problems we face, the trials we experience here, they are short-lived and they are not final. And if we allow them to overwhelm us, if we allow them to tear us down, it's because we have lost sight of the fact that we live under a risen Savior and that we have been saved by His Grace and that this life is no longer what defines us, but the one to come. That's where our hope is. That's where our strength is. That's where our power is. Not in what we can muster up on our own, but what he's doing in us. Paul picked up on this. He understood it and he's talking to the Corinthian church and he says to them in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that, that if in this life, If it's in this life, we only have hope that we are to be pitied above all people. And that is so true. But the converse side of that is just as true. If Jesus is alive, we have all the reason to celebrate. We have all the reason to look beyond the trials and tribulations of this day. That even now, His resurrection and the Holy Spirit indwelling us, living in us, convincing us us of His gospel of grace convincing us that it is in His gospel that we find our hope for life and joy in life. We, above all people, have reason to celebrate. We, above all, reason, above all people, have reason to throw parties. We, above all people, have reason to be passionate about the truth of who Jesus Christ is and about the truth of what He's came to proclaim and about the grace that He's offered to even sinful and, and, and empty, uh, self-righteous people. We have reason to throw the best parties. Because of the gospel, we have been freed from our sin and the pursuit of empty religion. We have been given life and the power to live. If this isn't reason to celebrate, I don't know what is. But we sit, oftentimes in silence, when we should be cheering. You are alive. You have hope. You have power. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing, neither life nor death, angels nor demons, that can remove you from the love that is in Christ Jesus. All things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. And those who he's called, he's predestined. Those who he's predestined, he's justified. And those who he's justified, he will glorify. Brothers and sisters, we are alive. Aren't we? Can I get an amen? Why aren't we up dancing in the aisles? I mean, don't, let's not... Let's not go too far. Yeah, crazy white people. But this is reason to dance. This is reason to give up on everything else and cast our lot with Christ. And he warns us 
he warns us that this is it. He warns us in these parables that he teaches at the end. Three statements that no one does, he warns us. He warns these religious people and thereby warns us. No one cuts a patch out of a new garment to sew onto the old because both will be ruined. No one puts new wine in old wineskins or the wineskin is ruined and the wine is lost. And no one wants new wine because the old they think is better. The three principles from that. Jesus' gospel of grace isn't just an addition to one's life. It's an entirely new life. We're not just plugging Jesus in. It's just not plug and play. It's it's a whole new life. He's given us a whole new outfit to wear. Nobody goes to the mall, buys clothes so that they can repair the ones that they have at home. We go to the mall to get new clothes because we like walking around in new clothes. Jesus has given you a new outfit. It's called grace. Put it on. Walk in it. Live in it. Find your hope and your power from it. You see, this isn't something we just plug in. We put it on, and when we put it on, it gives us a new way to walk, and people perceive something different. They see a new, a new person. And Paul talks about this in his letter to the Ephesians, and he talks about walking in ways that are worthy. But he's not calling us to this lifestyle. He's not calling us to an, a new way of living, a new way of walking, simply because we have to earn our place before God. He's calling us to it because we've been given our place before God. Repentance will always follow our faith. Repentance will always follow knowing who Jesus is. Repentance will always be a response to grace. It never will precede it. Otherwise, it's just empty religion. It's legalism. You see, there is a distinction to be made. Legalism is different than obedience. Legalism is different than than repentance. Legalism is, is driven out of fear. I don't want to be punished. So I'm going to follow these rules and I'm going to make sure that I please the person I don't want to be punished by. I'm afraid, so I'm going to protect myself. Obedience is driven from love. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. If we're not living in obedience, it's because we love something else more. See, when we get a picture, when we grab hold of the idea of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, We can't help but love him because he first loved us. And then rather than having to be commanded to obey, we want nothing more than to obey. Simply because we love him. Jesus' gospel of grace is not just an addition to one's life. It's an entirely new life. Jesus' gospel of grace must be received exclusively or it's lost completely. You cut the patch out of the new clothes... To put it on the old clothes, you've just ruined the new outfit. You put the, put, put the new wine in an old wineskin. See, they made their wineskins out of animal skin. They, they would take these animal skins, they would sew them up, and they would make these pouches out of them. And, and they were great for a little bit. And they were great if it's a new wineskin, you could put new wine in it. And as the, as the wine would ferment and expand and produce gas, and it would cause the skin to swell. It was fine if it was a new wineskin. It could take it. But if it had been used before, if it had been stretched to its capacity already, what would happen is as the new wine began to expand, it would burst. And not only do you lose the wineskin at that point, but you lost the wine. You see, we can't have the gospel and tag it to something else and still think that we got the gospel. Jesus is not, his gospel of grace is not something that we add to our effort or add to what's already existing in our life. It's not an idol to place up next to our other idols. He demands exclusivity. 
It is the only way. It is the only path to righteousness. It is the only way that we find approval before God. And if you try to add to it in any way, you lose everything. Your life is destroyed and you lose the gospel with it. Grace ceases to be grace as soon as you begin to work for it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't result in effort. Remember, it's a new life. But as soon as you put your effort on the side of earning his grace, you've lost grace. You destroyed it. You must receive grace exclusively as a gift. Thereby find its benefits. Jesus, gospel of grace, can only be received by grace through faith. He comes to this point where he says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. See, we live in this world where we are deceived. Deceived that our religion is good enough. Deceived that the world is satisfying enough. And so we stick with it. We keep drinking what we got. Keep drinking the Kool-Aid that we were being given by our parents or by the world around us, by the traditions of man. Instead of drinking the new wine that Jesus brought with him in his truth and in grace. By nature, we love what we have already. Whether it be our sin or our religion, we fool ourselves into believing that in it we are satisfied. If we are sitting here today knowing that we are sinners in need of a Savior, if we are sitting in here today and recognizing that we are trying at times to be religious and earn our place before God, it is an act of God's grace that you can believe it, that you can see it, and that you can know it. And He must make us new that we can then turn and receive this. It's by grace we are saved through faith, this not of ourselves, so that no one can boast. This not of ourselves. It's not our faith and it's not our effort. It's God's grace and his gift of faith to us that we are able to believe, that we are able to be saved. And as a result, we have no reason to boast. The playing field is leveled. We don't deserve to be here and no one else around us does either. John Newton, the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, once said, I'm not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan. And I can hardly join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. Jesus brought grace with him. He brought truth with him. And his truth confronts us and his grace empowers us. So now, left to ourselves, we can know that we would have been destroyed by sin or empty religion. But by his grace, we can know life. We can have hope for new life and joy in this life. 
Thank God he's come and given us grace. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful. Grateful that even as I stand here and preach, I see the evidence of sin. I see the passions of the flesh that wage war against my soul. I see the desires of my heart that rise up and then that would dishonor you if left unchecked. And among them I see the temptation to be a Pharisee, to stand in my religion and in my effort to prove myself worthy. Forgive me. Fill me with your truth. Empower me by your grace. Not only me, Father, would you do that for this church, for the people that sit here knowing you. Would you fill them with the hope and the joy that come through the gospel of your grace that we might live our lives worshiping you in all things. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.